Hello, and welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Angie Seymour, and this week we're talking about the Gardens of the Galaxy Volume 2, and I'm joined by Lucas Diamond and Thor Wallen. This film wasn't actually aimed at adults, so we've decided to take over the show this week. Hi, Lucas. So where are you calling from today? Um, I'm calling from uh, New York. And Thor, where are you? Richmond, Virginia. Cool. And I'm from Sydney, Australia. So, guys, um, Lucas, what was your favorite part of the film? Uh, my favorite part of the film was when they were in the core of the Eagle's planet fighting. Mm-hmm. And Thor? My favorite part was probably um, the, the part where they're on the snow planet with all the um, yellow things, whatever those were. Oh, when they came to um, visit Yondu, that part? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that all was the good. gold people. Yeah, they were pretty cool. I liked pretty much any section that had baby Groot in it because he was the Same. best thing in existence. Oh, my God, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Lucas, do you have, like, a favorite baby Groot scene? Uh, when Rocket tells him to press the button. Yeah, that, that was pretty good. Thor? Mm, I don't know. There is a lot, but I can't really choose one. I agree. Mm-hmm. I really like, like, the opening scene, you know, with, like, the giant monster, but you never see it. You just see baby Groot dancing. Oh, yeah. Like, he was so cute in that. That was and, like, a good think, way to roll the credits. Yeah, the credits, too. I like how they got, like, the whole cast dancing and everyone, like, got, like, clips of everything and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, it, was, it was an interesting way to shoot the opening scene where you don't just have it focused entirely on the action. You actually, you know, have, you know, just dancing adorableness. Yes, I agree. And it was fun because I think, like, in the first movie, that was, like, they loved it when, you know, Star-Lord started really randomly doing, like, a dance-off and, like, and they had a little baby Groot dancing. So I think they really just decided to go with what worked. Yeah. So were there any parts that you guys didn't really like in this film? Um, it's hard to say. I love the whole thing. Um, I'll let Thor go first. <laughs> wow. Um, I don't know. I would kind of agree with Lucas, but I think probably the part that I disliked the most was, like, the the surface of Ego's planet. It just seemed, like, too fantastical. I mean, that's what it's supposed to be. Mm, Yeah, yeah. I'd say my worst part that I didn't like was when, um... They were fighting the monster after with the golden things. After they had to be addressed. Oh. Hmm. Do you guys remember that part where, like, um, it was, like, I think it was Yondu and Rocket, and they were flying through this multiple different, like, dimension hopping things, and they kept going through all the different worlds, and, like, they started getting, like, really distorted? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't like... Yeah, I, I was a bit uncertain of that at first. I'm like, what exactly is happening here? But then th- that was actually pretty funny, I think, at the end. I'd say it was too cartoony, sort of. Mm, yeah. So um, what films do you guys think that our dads should review next? Um, I think... Uh, this is hard. Um, 
This is hard. How about the new Transformers movie? Oh, yeah, that looks so good. You guys seen, like, all the trailers for that? Yep. Oh, it looks so good. I don't know. It looks amazing. What about you, Thor? Did you say one? Uh, I don't know. Maybe Dunkirk? That looks like a good one. Ooh, Dunkirk, oh, Dunkirk, yeah. I haven't heard of that one. What about something like Wonder Woman? Oh, yeah, Ooh. I forgot about that. Yeah, and that's coming out. That's coming out so soon. I know my dad's gonna go see like a premiere for that or something tomorrow. I'm super jealous. I'm so excited. I want to go see that like right now. Yeah. Hmm. Anything else that's coming up? that's particularly good. Um, um. I think Atomic Blonde looks good. Oh. Uh, that. Yeah, I haven't heard of that one. It's hard to say. I only saw like one trailer for it. Um, it's about this, like, spy girl who, like, is going through things and has to fight against, like, a government or something. Mm, like a German wow. government. Yeah. Uh, I guess another movie I'm really excited for would have to be, um, the new Star Wars, which is quite a way Ooh. off, but still will be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did you guys watch, um, Rogue One and Force Awakens? Oh, yep. I saw that at the IMAX theater. That was awesome. Oh, that'd be so cool. And what, what are the other ones? Oh, another sort of DC. you got Justice League. Oh, Justice League. That's going to look awesome. Yeah. I don't I know we, about that stuff. You're not like, too sure? Uh, I don't, it does look nah. kind of sketchy. <laughs> the sort of Batman versus Superman and how not good that was, at least in my opinion. Um, I'm not really sure. Like, we'll, we'll have to see where they take it. Yeah. Well, like I, I'm not going to really spoilers. It's hard to not to. Because mm. like I will say something. <laughs> yeah, like, I really want DC to, you know, give out some really, like, good movies this mm-hmm. year, hopefully. And I, I think Wonder Woman's going to be really great. So I, I hope Justice League mm-hmm. will, like, follow with that. Maybe um, Wonder Woman could be a prequel of Justice League. Yeah. Because we'll see her again in Justice League, so that'll be cool that we have like some backstory before we go to Justice League. Exactly. Yeah. So, does your dad have like any like sort of lame films he likes, or like what do you think of his taste? Like Lucas, what um, do you think? I think he has taste in good action movies or sci-fi. Um, he does. I don't really like how his taste in like drama movies. Yet he doesn't have that good taste in comedy, so that's not to say. <laughs> Yeah. Thor? Uh, I kind of like my dad's taste. I like the sort of sci-fi action stuff, like Aliens and all that. Like the new Alien mm-hmm. movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They should review that if they haven't already. Yeah, true. My, yeah, yeah, my dad went to review the new Alien. Yeah, my dad went to go see the new Aliens movie, and I'm not sure how much of he, he saw. Is I think he was hiding behind the seat in front of him. Is that scary? Yeah, that's what he said. I'm not going to go see it. I'd go see it. You know what? <laughs> I'm really, I'm really, I really hope they're, they're going to review it. Which one? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, um, like that one I looks amazing. It looks yeah. freaky. Well, guys, it's been you know really great talking to you, but I think we better hand back the shows to our dads. <laughs> yep. 
Yeah, right. they could probably do it a lot better than us. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks See for ya. having me. Okay. Thanks, See guys. Ya. Bye. See ya. <laughs> okay, thanks, Ange. Uh, <laughs> so I think, guys, uh, our days here are numbered. I think uh, we're going to be uh, su- supplanted by the next generation, the no effect of the next it. gen. Um, <laughs> we can only so, so apart from me being lame, apparently, um, <laughs> let's get back to <laughs> yeah, your Somehow opinions. I have a terrible, case, terrible taste in comedies, which is... Uh, very true. And very insulting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I know. It's funny. Your, your perspective on your own parents' jobs as well, like what your parents do, is either completely ordinary or completely odd or just completely dull. You know, like it's... Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> totally. Very. Uh, anyway, um, so yes. So swinging back to Guardians, um, though I was very interested to hear their views on other films coming up. Um, so uh, what, did, what did you think, Matt? Uh, I mean, you know, I was, I definitely was a big fan of the first film. So I was pretty excited to see this one. And I think, uh, I, I wasn't, uh, disappointed. I just think in the end, probably for me, like I didn't enjoy it as much as the first film, but I, I think, um, I didn't have super high expectations. I didn't go see it opening weekend. I waited about a, uh, I think a week or two after it came out and, um, but I, it was fun. I mean, it was a really fun movie. There's a lot of good jokes in it. Um, there's some pretty good effects in it overall. There were a few things that I wasn't super crazy about, but um, but some of it was really really cool. And and uh, yeah, overall, I think it was it was really fun. It was a neat, uh, fun, light uh, summer um, blockbustery kind of movie. Jason, I really liked it. I mean, it's hard to. Uh it's always hard. A sophomore uh, event, you know, sophomore follow-up is always hard when the first one is such a splash, especially out of nowhere. Like nobody was expecting it and it did really well and had a really good vibe. And then they have to try and capture that the second time um, is really hard, but I liked it. I mean, I, I, it seemed to me, they just, you know, he just focused, James Gunn just focused on the, uh, the, the, the family theme. It's almost like a, Point counterpoint to Fast and the Furious, which is a really shitty, terrible movie about family, and this is a really <laughs> awesome, amazing movie about family. Uh, and uh, I, I enjoyed it. I mean, you know, there's you can feel the kind of ups and downs and the bumps, and it's it's as people get along in these series, and you can see it on TV and stuff. And as characters start to develop their thing, they have their sort of catchphrases or their their attitude sort of responses that they fall into. And this wasn't that deep into that yet, but you could see it starting to get there. Um, so hopefully they break out of that for the third one. I guess from my point of view, the, my expectations were very high because I just thought the other one was so good. And also I was so, so just, <laughs> it's an expectation game. In the first one, I thought this is never going to work. It's going to be completely lame. Uh, I've said it a number of times, you know, a, a talking raccoon and a moving tree. It's going to be <laughs> just so lame. And I just was blown away. So that was the best thing ever. The soundtrack worked really well, et cetera. The second one, of course, had really high expectations for as a consequence. And I found that it lacked um, much additional dimension to what we'd got in the first one. Visual effects were really, really good, but it just felt like everything was turned up a little bit to like 10 and a half. So I wasn't like wasted, but it was, you know, everything was super saturated. And then as I'll complain about later, some of the effects were bigger and 
and sort of more over the top. And as a consequence, I started to lose uh, interest in it as much. But that being said, there was some brilliant visual effects work. Do you guys think part of the reason why, like, I I think we all sound like we're kind of sort of even in our uh, keel about this picture. I wonder, like, do you guys, because I just hearing you guys say what you're saying and sort of (laughs) thinking about it myself, I'm wondering, like, do you think we're having a, is this like fatigue at all of like this kind of film? Well, I don't think so. I felt fatigued when I saw sort of like one of those films where New York got trashed and I was like, oh my God, again with the, you know, large destruction sequences. Now this one was more like um, classic sequelitis, right? Where, you know, this worked really well in the first film, so we'll go harder in the second. So for example, in the first film, and, and again, I don't want to be too critical, so I did think it was a really good film and, and a lot of fun. But in the first film, Groot was awesome, right? This time he's super cute awesome, yeah? And not just a bit cute. If you look at the model differences between Groot 2 and Groot 1 that was at the end of the first film, he's become much more like a, a soft toy toy thing, plush thing, yeah. and much more sort of cartoony. And, and while he's terrific, right, and I mean really, really good, um, it's just like everything is like that. The film is more saturated. Um, everything's just like a bit more OTT. And it has this other sequelitis problem, which is, um, uh, again, I'm saying really critical, but anyway, there are bits when you just go enter bit four sequel three. Like, so Sylvester mm-hmm. Stallone scene, that seemed like an odd scene. That doesn't seem to have a lot of relevance. Hmm, wonder why those characters were introduced. You know, it's almost like, hello, exposition. Only this time it's like, hello, we're just setting some stuff up for films to come. So uh, just over here, I'm just going to show you some interesting characters. not going to give you much away right now, Just, but I'll spend an odd amount of time on this thing here. Is that, there you go, and we'll move on. Can we call that MCU-itis? Maybe, yeah. And, and the, Ian, you know, the, like the thing is that the whole nature of the film um, is obviously fantastic, but you've got to be really careful because when you're trying to sell something that's so OTT, um, I think you really need to stay a little, little bit more grounded rather than take the motto, which is, hey, it's a, got a talking raccoon and a moving tree, so anything's possible, right? So, you know, characters were picking up large parts of spaceships as guns on their shoulders in what seemed to be monumentally superhuman strength kind of sequences, which made me think that I didn't believe it was a gun. I didn't believe it would fire because if you could hold anything that large and not be ricocheted across the room when it, when it fired, I mean, like the recoil from it would be astronomical, right? They just like at no point can I survive or see a character surviving this or that kind of thing. And a bomb will go up and they'll be just sort of thrown across the room. It's like they're indestructible. They're, you know, anything goes kind of thing. In which case, yeah, you know, it's just like, um, like there's no, so it's fun and it's good, but when it goes too far, it just becomes like, okay, well, whatever. You've lost some of the, if it had any gravitas. Um, what made the first one funny was like the stuff that wasn't the big OTT stuff. It was the, you know, more realistic conversation. And so you still get some of that, I think, but you just lose it. You lose it a little bit by just winding everything to 10 and a half. Do you think yeah. that, do you think the, the Groot sort of tweak in his baby Groot look is a Ewok kind of yeah, exactly. thing where they had to just like cute him up a little bit so the kids will, you know, it's, it's a direct correlation to the toy. Yeah. See, yeah, I, I think, think the, exactly I think the it. stuff that got ramped up was the dialogue and the VFX while they were ramped up were, were not as egregious to me as the, 
and again, I'm being super crit- critical because I really enjoyed it and, and we had a great time seeing it and I enjoyed it a lot actually. But to be critical about it, the thing that that you could really point to as OTT was the dialogue. Like they were, everything was turned up, you know, this, but this one goes to 11, you know what I mean? It's just the dialogue was, so, everything so was like an, a, a kooky, catchy argument and everyone is... Uh, you know, getting on each other's nerves and laughing at each other. And that's cool because it actually is totally, totally different than all the other uh, Marvel movies, except for I'm hoping Thor Ragnarok because of Taika Waititi. But yeah, I mean, I think the Thor move has been better, right? They've made Thor more funny and more human by, you know, winding up a couple of things that were there in the first film. Like remember when he's at the at the uh, restaurant in the first film ever and he's like, I need a horse or whatever it was. It was like very much, and you're seeing that humor play out now, even in the before movie, um, whatever teaser thing where he's, you know, trying to talk to, and he's like, send a raven, you know, and it's like, it's funny because he's like out of context for Shadow Water and he's, and you, you know, it's like not taking itself too seriously. So that's what it's great. But here's the thing, right? And Matt, maybe you can answer this. When um, uh, Star-Lord is throwing his plasma ball with Dad, what was I meant to take out of that? Was I meant to think that was sarcasm? Was I meant to be like sincerely a super soppy moment? Was it meant to be pathetically (laughs) cutesy or was that just me kind of going, oh, are you for real? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think it's one of those moments where, yeah, I mean, I think I I actually, watching that, I, I thought like, boy, this is so corny, but like it's played in a kind of earnest way, you know, that it seems like it wasn't totally tongue in cheek or if it was intended to be, it didn't feel that way. And so it it felt really ham-fisted like as an expression of like some classical kind of conception of, you know, father and son, you know, having a catch or whatever in the yard. So now I'm going to play ball with dad with a plasma ball. And they'd even said it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it was it was a little bit over the top as a as a scripted moment, and it, you know, it, I guess you're supposed to have some kind of connection to, you know, the the uh, Star Lord character to feel like, you know, oh yeah, that would be great to finally meet your dad or whatever. It's like uh, it's like their um, what's that movie that everybody talks about the uh, Kevin Costner baseball movie, the Field of Dreams kind of yeah. moment, you know? And but, it but just Field felt, of Dreams was felt really played flat. for that the whole way. Like the, it, Field of Dreams kind of earned it, right, by being kind of yeah earnest throughout, which is why I was really interested to get Angie's opinion. Cause I was like, if I was a 13 year old or a 14 year old or a 15 year old, you know, girl, would I think like that scene was really sweet? And she was like, no, lame. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, I don't know about your kids, but it was just, so there were things like that. Now, if I was to say that that was, you know, kind of struggling a bit. And also by the way, um, the whole idea of ego riding on the outside of his ship while passing the guys in space with some kind of like, you know, space cowboy kind of thing was just, again, another one of those. You only put that in so you could make the joke about him being a two-inch high person, right? But at the expense of just sensible realism, like that ego would climb on the outside of his ship and then fly by with a couple of stirrups, just seems so incongruous. But I think but some of the But at the same time, his character's name is Ego. <laughs> True, but it's just, you know, like, just seemed like a, just pretty lame. Um, <laughs> but I also think that some of the visual effects in the film was spectacularly good, right? And for a lot mm-hmm. of it, the film was funny and really, really good. I mean, I think for myself anyway, when they first arrive on Ego's planet and we get to see inside Ego's um, 
uh, I guess, cathedral-like home, you have some of the best sort of visual effects modeling I've seen in ages and then some of the lamest, dumbest directorial choices within minutes in that the Easter eggy um, French, I mean, sort of, uh, what do you call it, um, Fabergé egg kind of rubber mm-hmm. plastic dioramas. Like, hey, son, I've made these plastic in a shoebox dioramas to depict my life with your mother. I mean, what the? Those were so hilarious though. That looked like, it reminded me of, uh, there's this, an artist named Charles Ray, who's a, an LA based um, sculptor. And he's done these really, some very perverse, but also some really interesting sculptures. And I felt like it was playing off of like Charles Ray, or there's another artist, Keith Edmire, who makes these really, um, you know, fine art sculptures, but using like, you know, weird materials, resins and stuff. And like um, Charles Ray, for example, did these sculptures of these like 12 foot tall, like women in business suits. And he's got another sculpture called Charlie, Charlie, Charlie. And it's like three, like, you know, kind of biologically correct uh, sculptures of himself where he's kind of like, <laughs> he's sort of giving himself a, you know, a little fun. And uh, it, they're really interesting. And I thought, I thought they were going for an aesthetic and a look that was like pulled straight out of, you know, a sort of the fine contemporary fine artist sculptor's handbook, you know? So I, I actually thought those were, totally ridiculous and hideous, you know, in terms of their design. But I felt like they were referencing something like cultural that was kind of humorous too, in a way. Well, it's almost like, you know, even though you're a God, you still don't necessarily have taste. Well, yeah. And even his, <laughs> it, like the whole thing of like the world that he lived in, the world he designed, like, yeah. and his spaceship that was like this big egg, you know, like, which actually yeah. I thought was kind of cool. It was so corny. It looked like something out of like heavy metal or something, you know? Yeah. Well, but, they were uh, similar to those diorama eggs, you know, sort of like- totally. uh, yeah, but yeah, then but then the world see, he designed had this kind of like who's that guy the uh, the really schlocky you know with a call him the painter of light or whatever what's that dude's name and he has like shops in malls all over the place oh you know, I don't the know painter guy oh he, I don't know what I'm talking about <laughs> no, no it's like it's like no, it's like he the one step removed from that but he paints like cottages with glowing lights and stuff inside oh. I mean, it's really just the worst like kitschy junk but uh it had that same kind of look like it was so hideously like beautiful in this kind of hobbity kind of grossness you know i thought but, it was just interesting that that the the kurt russell diorama figure looked more like barbarino you know <laughs> yeah more, like, here's the thing but hog. you see like it, thomas kincaid been... is who i'm thinking about. oh yeah it had the same problem though, right? Like the dioramas, if they'd been... So my example is in, and you're going to hate this one, but Star in, um, in Superman at the beginning when they've got the uh, like pin pressiony kind of um, uh, exposition thing, right? And so Weta did it and it was superb. And it had this kind of weird German kind of, I don't know, Russian propaganda feel, like a sort of a 1940s kind of um, yeah. art deco mm-hmm. look. So where did that come from? I don't know, but it totally worked because it was clearly of a style that was stylized and it was cool and interesting to visually look at and I just totally loved it as a bit of how are you going to do with the exposition and the backstory stuff. But these dioramas, um, while you know, I'm sure flawless in their technical execution, were neither 
extreme enough to be sarcastic. Like if he'd made himself bigger than everybody else and prettier <laughs> and stuff, that, that would have been funny, right? Like he's just, he would have yeah. played to his ego. But they were almost exactly right, but not quite. And so therefore yeah. I'm like, well, am I meant to be taking these seriously? Am I meant to be thinking they're really stupid? Am I meant to be laughing that he has these? Or am I meant to be thinking that he's just made them as a way of communicating with his yeah. son? And like, huh? Like made, maybe he'd done it in, you know, I referenced... Um, you know, let me express it in ways that you know, and then had the whole thing done with um, figures or caricatures or whatever you want to call it from Knight Rider. That would have been hysterical, right? Yeah. Like, mm. let me express it in a way it you can understand. It's funny when he so. turned into Hasselhoff later, though. So he yeah, did, which is great. They did play that that bit, so it's funny. Okay, but maybe like, you know, TV shows from your youth, right? And like there's Happy yeah. Days and there's all these other things, and we would have all gone, what? That's so, that's so you know, a bit like they're done with the music, right? But right. it wasn't. Well, it also, because was like, he was on Earth back then too, so it's, yeah. he would have had the he would have had the reference for it. Yeah. So like he shows it in one way, and and the son is like, "What am I looking at?" It's, oh, oh, let me show you. You know, I remember how it is on Earth, and then done the whole thing in kind of you know bad. That would have been hysterical, right. but well, because it would have that, riffed was, off the Walkman too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think thematically too, though, there's this whole thing going on in the larger story. Like, so, I mean, I I hear what you're saying. I guess like, I think there are a host of things that like are design. I I mean, just from a, it's subjective, but from my point of view, like there are some design problems (laughs) in the movie. But I think if you look thematically at like some of the choices they make in terms of those things being in eggs and stuff and the egg ship and sort of the whole sort of um, you know, he's impregnating all these planets and planting his seed in order to sort of, you know, there's this whole kind of father, like, and, you know, God, Godfather, I don't know, kind of thing going on there, like throughout the story. And so everything kind of ties back into that thematic piece of like, kind of this, you know, like pregnant with ego kind of thing going on. Well, yeah, that that works on paper. And, and, I, yeah. and if that's what you asked, so, I mean, I think Animal Logic did those eggs. And if you asked Animal Logic mm-hmm. to do those eggs, uh, I couldn't imagine anyone doing better eggs that looked like plastic figures, whatever. But I just don't think that was the right decision visually. Well, that's what I'm saying. And, it's, a, it's a design issue. Like, I yeah, think but it's not, a, else, yeah. it's not a bad execution so much as it is just why execute that way. Um, Although I would say there are some, when we get to it, there are some visual effects design issues that I, I could pick, pick on a little bit too. But anyway. But before we go past it, I also think that the fractal nature of the cathedral house had such visual density of like, uh, look. I mean, I really leaned into that. Like I thought it was just Mm. such an impressive piece of modeling tech to get that place looking the way that it did. Um, Just really liked that look at all. And, you know, the... And the use of fractals in this film were, were handled very, very well in terms of Ego's planet. But, um, and, and, and also we're focusing on this, right? I would, before I even went there, I should have said, I think that Rocket and Groot from a character animation point of view, uh, this is the best Rocket we've seen. It was spectacularly well animated as like just hand character animation. And I would have happily had a heap more Rocket and a heap less you know, eggs and stuff and enjoyed the <laughs> film to death. But that's just me. Um, do you want to discuss, that's like back at the beginning, like the our kids were talking about that opening sequence with Baby Groot. When I saw that, I thought, oh, we're in for such a good film. It seemed like such a good decision to stay on Groot for so long and not just play what was going on in the background. It made it such a more interesting sequence. I, w- I was very impressed with that opening um, fight sequence. What about you guys? 
Yeah, I thought with yeah. the the monster and stuff, I thought yeah. uh, was really great, and and the uh, sort of the choreography and the the fun kind of banter between the characters, like you know, you sort of are being reintroduced to, you know, that you're your former friends that you haven't seen in a, a couple of years, right? And so I thought the whole thing played out really well and uh, and it was a lot of fun to watch. Like it was, um, you never felt like they were really in any um, real danger, I think. there it, it felt more like it was a, um, it reminded me more almost like of a, of a kind of like a Ghostbusters kind of uh, campiness, yeah. you know, in terms of the, the levity of the scene. But I thought the way the visual effects were executed in that scene and um, even that whole kind of nebulous environment and platform that they were standing on, I thought was, was cool. Like it was just a fun opening set piece and to focus on Groot and have follow him around as he's sort of nonchalantly and sort of... Um, uh, almost non-participatory in the in the battle. He's sort of ignorant of everything going on around him almost. Um, I thought it was really fun. And I, I still think uh, Drax is, uh, I mean, he every time that guy opened his mouth, I just think he's so hilarious. It's so perfect. Yeah, Drax just- totally stole the movie for me. I mean, he's they give him all, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, you know, what you were saying before, when you have a character who can't die, then, you know, all things go out the window. But at the same time, when you have a character who doesn't get humor at all and can, mm-hmm. and you know that his character can say anything, but he's not saying it maliciously, he literally has no idea what he's saying <laughs> uh, like that. Then it's just, it's a great character device to just make him a total, say the most ridiculous things. Um, but, but I agree with both of you guys. I think, using that scene as an introduction reintroduction or an introduction if you were you know maybe your friend dragged you to it and you hadn't seen the first one it's uh but also you are being introduced to a new character which is baby Groot because you don't really know what baby Groot's deal is you know that he's a baby version of Groot but you what is, does he have abilities can he grow his hands can he do you know what what are his parameters so i think the opening scene was a really good way to give you the wrap up of everybody show, give you a little fun action and a, and a good song. Um, but then also to introduce you to Groot, baby Groot and what his vibe is. Um, and then, you know, of course, uh, it was a, the great end where, where Drax thinks he did it and they're like, all right, whatever, buddy, you know, um, it was good. It was, it was nice. And it looked like, I agree. It looked fantastic. And by, by doing uh, it's it's sort of that Ant-Man play where you get down on a much smaller level so things mm-hmm. go out of, you know, get a much better shallow depth of field and that kind of stuff, which always looks great when you can nail it with CG. Um, uh, we can we can come back around to this, Mike, also, but we should also talk about the VistaVision aspect of the, you know, um, you know, the principal photography, even though there's tons of blue screen, it's kind of hard to know what's stage and what's not, but just the, the, that this, these were shot on, you know, the Panavision 70 mil primos and the red Vista vision. It's the first film to be shot on it. It's not even the DXL Panavision DXL, uh, I think is an interesting, uh, aspect to this as well. Well, I, let me talk about that in one second. I just want to finish on the Groot thing because I want to make one really yeah. significant point and get your input on it, which is uh, when I was at FMX in Germany, I was talking to Framestore's um, character animator lead and he was saying that the, because we're talking about you know how do you animate characters and sort of a philosophy of backstory, blah, blah, blah. 
He was saying, and I thought it was really interesting, that they animated Baby Groot um, with the idea, respectfully, that uh, that that character was on the spectrum of autism. And I thought that was a really interesting point in that um, at, at many levels, right? Firstly, that you would go there on, on that sort of notion of trying to, because it isn't a baby-like response the character has. It's got a it's got a, and I was trying to pin what that down it was like it's an indifference, but then it kind of does pay attention, but it's loyal, but it's a bit confused. And they were like, oh, we thought it was on the spectrum. And so we were trying to, you know, get those qualities. And I thought, wow, that is like in terms of an animation brief, right? You want to animate a baby character that is obviously very rare and of a sort of almost a different time. And yet this baby-like character has to be mixed with um, autism and then make them effectively uh, want a better term, a superhero um, in an action film and a comedy. I mean, uh, just a few years ago, that would have seemed like an impossible animation challenge. And yet I also kind of thought as he was saying it, how great if you were a parent of a child who had possibly um, was on the spectrum that, you know, without apology, without referring to it, without even kind of acting as if this is something that, um, you know, they should be applauded for, they've produced a character that's a functioning um, member of a effectively super action, um, super performing team. Um, thoughts, Matt? Actually, I sh- well, just to jump in real quick, I should ask my wife about that because she and I and, and Lucas went to see the m- movie and she is a board certified behavioral analyst and she deals with hmm. autistic kids for the last, you know, 20 years from the ages of zero to five. So I'm going to mention that to her and see if she you know, picked up on that or felt that it was in that zone. It would be really interesting. I didn't know well, that. Well, yeah, I didn't, I did not know that either. I mean, I didn't know that about your wife, but, uh, that would be fascinating to, to get that opinion because, um, yeah, I mean, I, I felt really good about those choices that they made. Yeah, for Matt, sure. No character went great. I guess I, I mean, I thought the character was great. I guess I, I wouldn't have, had you not mentioned that I would never have even, that would never have crossed my mind. <laughs> like I don't know that there was any part of the the characterization um, that would make me think you know anything in that sort of spectrum you know of you know autism or Asperger's or something along those lines. Like you know, it's an interesting brief, and it really does describe maybe what it is that they're seeking when they're trying to create something for the character, and that's interesting. But I, I don't know that I picked up on that at all. Which, I, I, was that a brief from the animators or from the director? Um, I have to check my notes. That was certainly what the animation director discussed with his team in terms of right. what they were going for. And it resonated with me really strongly. I don't have a particularly strong, um, certainly nothing. I mean, I have nothing in the zone of what your wife has. But from my limited um, exposure, it's, it resonated with me because there is there are properties in Groot that are neither um, like childlike in that it is just a child that easily gets scared and whatever. But there was a an ability to apply attention and to do things. And yet there was difficulties in communication, but there was a sense of uh, loyalty. And and then on top of all of that, to then have that character um, dealt with the way that they did in the film, which was, you know, I think in particular the sequence when he's being beaten up uh, before they make him put on the suit is is again extraordinary, right? Because, I mean... That was nigh on just viciously cruel, the way that they were 
torturing baby Groot uh, in the sequence before um, he gets his revenge. Now, I know why you need to do that because you're going to kill every one of those characters and so you have to have them killable as in morally bankrupt so the audience is okay with Yondu killing them all. But nevertheless, I felt like, bloody hell, that's like pretty, you know, mean behaviour to, um, mm. to... I mean, they didn't put blood, as it were, I guess, because it's a tree. But what did you think about the beating up of that given that, that that's the context that we're meant to appreciate the character in. Well, if you, if you put it in that context, the, inter- the thing that's interesting, if you, if you step out of that for one second and you think about the, if you put, if you put him on the spectrum in terms of just uh, general behavior, you know, autistic kids are not, there is no um, intellectual um, uh, disparity. They they are as smart as a typically developing mm-hmm. kid. It's a yep. it's a processing issue, which is yep. which is really and and often language. So when you when you think about Groot, you say, okay, well, he only says one thing, and and he but he means different things by that one thing. So there's a communication difference, and he hears what you say, much like the thing they did with the buttons at the end with the bomb. Like that is. Mm-hmm. That's very reminiscent of, you know, well, I'm hearing what you're saying, but I'm not processing, I'm I'm processing it backwards. But then, and then, you know, of course he has to get it, otherwise it wouldn't work. But, you know, if, if you apply those things, that, that viewpoint to it, it seems to me in, in my limited sort of runoff knowledge from my wife, that it's, it's pretty successful in that it's, you know, and of course, kids on the spectrum or with any dis, uh, disability or, or non-typical, you know, development get bullied and, and things at school and, and teased. So there, you know, I think I, I agree with you that you have to do that to, to baby grew. And, and because, because it's not a human baby, I think people look at it differently. He's a baby superhero basically. Right. Uh, or, or small superhero who has already done some fantastical things at the beginning. So I think the audience, there's enough cushion that the audience will allow him to be bullied knowing that he won't be killed and that he will be, or, or really severely hurt, but certainly some revenge will be exacted by somebody if not him. But you know, but I agree with you, Mike, that you have to, you have to make all the, even in a comedy, you have to make all the people who are going to get negative results deserve it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think there's like tremendous, um, admiration I have for the animators in taking what is not performance capture, but you know, like the skill of working with a rig and walking such a nuanced performance line. I mean, like I, I just can't begin to imagine us having this discussion ten years ago, and and them having been able to pull it off that you could get anywhere near this kind of level. And I mean, Rocket similarly. Like Rocket, um, mm-hmm. obviously doesn't have the same um, backstory discussion that we just had, but you know, there is some sense of him uh, having a real sense of rejection earlier in his life, and some stuff at the end with um, you know when he's kind of uh, connecting with Yondu. And I felt like, man, like you're trying to get this raccoon to emote that they've been genetically modified, hard done by, resentful, you know, like uh, I I will think, you know, there have been a couple of like standout 
character animation, things like that. And I, I'll go to the last planet of the apes film. Cause I think that when, when, um, when there was that sequence where he turned up at the two thugs and pretended to be um, an idiot and we, the oh, audience, yeah. could read that the, that the ape was pretending to be a dumb ape while having a subtext of the winning them over so he could then kill them right, because right. he resented them, blah, blah, blah. But like, like there are only a few of those that, you know, I mean, that's that one I think was an outstanding piece of character animation and I can't wait to see what they do in the next um, apes film. But... But in this one, again, like you're in a comedy, you're trying to get a lot across. And if you had a comic actor, they could quite often fail to get this much across, yet alone getting a, you know, without being kind of seeming like it's, because, you know, like there is occasionally you'll have like someone, Arnold Schwarzenegger or somebody who tries to do comedy and it just doesn't work. He can do action, but when he smiles in a funny way, he looks like a freaking. Yeah, it's, again, I'll, re- I'll refer to the Fast and Furious movie, uh, the most recent one, which I saw last night. Uh, and is the first of all of eight of those movies I've ever seen. And <laughs> besides being terrible, there is a there is a thing where they try and get they try and work in this comedy into the into these that movie, and it it's very hard. It works for a couple dudes, but it doesn't work for the whole cast. And so, to your point, I I agree that there's this. I mean. The amazing thing is that Rocket at this point, like you forget 100% that he's digital. Like, yeah. Like I don't even yeah. think about, about like, oh, I wonder, look at that way he's moving in the end. Like I, from the minute the movie started, I'm like, wow, what's Rocket going to say? Right. I'm right. only like, my brain is only interested in what he's going to say. And you forget that he is 1 million percent digital. And, and the, the snout, sort of sitting out, protruding like it does, hiding the mouth and the amount mm-hmm. of fur on the face. Like, and you, and you can't animate with that much fur in a, on a, you know, workstation in real time, obviously. So you've got to have proxy volumes and a whole lot of other stuff. So some talented animator has sat there and managed to get these expressions knowing that it's going to have to read through fur and the mouth will often be obscured because from the point of view of the other actors, they're kind of looking down on him. So that's the camera view. And yet, you know, like we're getting these amazing performances. I mean, Groot's face is a little easier because they have done this cartoonization, as it were, that I'm calling it. You know, it's more mm-hmm. sort of cutesy things so that it plays well. But in Rocket's case, they haven't. They didn't make Rocket. It didn't seem like they made Rocket sort of somehow cuter or more accessible. They're just bloody good animation. No, I, he, just I, looked like, he just looked like Scrat when they were doing, from Ice Age, when they were doing the bouncing between all the... Uh, the dimensions or portals or that's whatever. That's true, you know, yes. Gates. That's right. That's a great reference. I, 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 as soon as you said that, that that's <laughs> totally spot on. Yeah. So, and, and, okay, so that brings us to one of the other things that I think was just rock steady genius, which is um, young Kurt. Let me, oh before gosh. I go any further, who saw this in stereo and who saw it in mono? Mono. I saw mono. Okay, I saw it in stereo. So let me just say one thing before we get into that. The opening shot, you know how it's like there's a car driving across a, I don't know, Midwestern kind of mm-hmm. rural area? Yep, okay. In stereo, they wound the stereo up so that that looked like a miniature. It looked worse than a miniature. It looked like a desktop oh. miniature. I actually thought it was an Ant-Man joke. I thought they were going to do some huge joke. This was all being played out on some simulation on mm-hmm. and that a big hand would come in because it felt like an inch, you know, size car only because you shouldn't have stereo at um, at distance because it all fades out after, you know, the yeah. stereoscopic parallax fades out after like what, five, eight metres, 10 metres. And this was, you know, hundreds of metres and if not a kilometre and it was just the worst piece of stereo decision making ever. 
And I know that because I saw it again in mono and it was way better. <laughs> and when you're trying to sell something as hard as that, doing that, which took me out of the film and made it look like effects, when, it, when that part of it wasn't, right? Like I presume there was a real car driving across a real field, um, was just, I mean, the stereo, I would so recommend, I've even said it to people, like, whatever you do, don't see this film in stereo. It just detracts from the film. Well, also it wasn't shot in stereo, so why bother? Yeah, exactly. I, well, I got and to it's see. kind of tough too to say that it takes you out of the film, and that's like one of the opening shots of the film. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's you're the not last even thing in it you yet. want to have yeah. happen. Like you mm-hmm. haven't even started, and you're already like, "What?" And you're almost immediately questioning, "What am I looking at?" Because you know mm-hmm. your brain says shallow depth of field or shallow stereo is a you know like a different look than obviously what you get on a big wide shot, and so your brain's trying to go, "Huh? What am I looking at?" And so that's what I spent the first you know seconds going, "Huh?" And they went, "Oh, they haven't, have they?" And of course. They had. Um, okay, so put that to one side. Um, young Kurt, uh, the the biggest jump backwards in time that Lola's ever done. Um, so uh, I don't know. What do you guys think? It was spectacular. It was so good. I mean, and like the the fact that, you know, we're all, I mean, Kurt Russell essentially grew up, you know, in front of a camera, right? I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah. Think he, I think his first Disney film, he was like, six or eight or something, you know, right. Where he's like, I can't remember what the movie was, but he's been acting his whole life. And so, you know, to go back and see the young, you know, super, you know, dimpled cheeks of the young, smooth skinned Kurt Russell. I mean, it, it was impressive. It was just sort of like, dang, like, you know, it felt like, um, yeah, I mean, it felt like time travel, you know, I don't know. I mean, just to be able to achieve that kind of look and get that kind of aesthetic and have that kind of, um, the facial mobility, the, the pliability, like, and believability, like it, it didn't feel stilted. It didn't feel stiff. It didn't feel stuck on. Like it felt, it, he felt totally alive. You know, I thought it was, I would say- it was jaw droppingly good. That's funny that you say jaw dropping because the, the the only thing when I because I knew I mean obviously uh, right away I was like okay I know who did that and I'm I'm gonna like it's the opening shot so I'm not even mm. in the movie yet I'm just gonna pixel peep the shit out of this uh, <laughs> uh, I and my wife turned to me and she's like whoa and I was like that's digital you know but yeah. the um, the it was I agree with you 100 percent but the thing that's interesting about it is. As Kurt Russell's gotten older, his face has gotten wider, much like John mm-hmm. Travolta. So it, it looked like to me they took the wider, older face of John of Kurt Russell and made that younger instead of slimming him a little bit. Um, uh, his face looked a little longer when he was younger in the Escape from New York kind of you know that era, uh, the thing, what have you. Uh, although this might even age-wise be before that but um that would be my only that would be my only like to be uber critical uh that stuck out to me his face felt a little wide to me so so i got to talk to trent at uh, lola and that's in an article that's online on fx guide and the look that they were going for i said that i said it it was um escape from new york because that's for me one of my favorite films of all time. Yeah. Um, but I said, the trouble is you couldn't go there, could you? Because he had an eye patch on. And they went, no, that was in right. fact the reference from the director. But the film that they actually used was a film called Used Cars, which was made oh, almost, love used if not cars. the, right. I think it was made the same year or like right before Escape from New York. Um, so that had exactly the right 
um, kind of curt in it. In other words, he has quite a lot of hair, but not Farrah yep. Fawcett hair like he has in this. Um, <laughs> he doesn't have the eye patch, but also he's clean shaven and he has kind of a lot of smiles and a lot of the facial sort of expressions that this Kurt needed to also pull off. And so um, we actually put the trailer for uh, used cars, which was 1980, I think, up on um, on FX Guide so you can have a look at it. But it was a 36, 37-year de-aging back to that. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, all done with compositing. I want to underline that because some moron in the trade press said that they'd done it with special effects makeup, which is completely wrong. <laughs> yeah. And then some other people said it was done with CGI. And I don't know if they meant that, but it wasn't a 3D face. It was not a model. Um, they do face tracking so they can, you know, obviously spatially track the face, but it's not a 3D render from Arnold or something that you're you're seeing. It's compositing um, and it's hardcore compositing. And I tell you what, somebody said to me off the record, so I won't say who said it, but somebody involved with the film, um, but not the director, say, said, you know how good Lola's work is because they're the only company in the VFX industry that gets paid rate card. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, wow. And uh, I don't know if that's true, but it, I just like the sentiment, right? And they didn't mean it bitterly either. They were like in awe of just how good these guys are. Um, but, you know, it's obviously the hallmark now of these Marvel films that from Ant-Man to whatever, um, obviously Captain America, that uh, you'll get, you know, odd flashbacks and sometimes they work slightly better than others. But I think this one, I just thought was remarkable. and And I was just... So expecting it to be, okay, well, hang on, they must have body doubled or something, this whole thing. But it's Kurt in every shot, even when he's walking away down a hill and you don't even see his face. It's always Kurt and it's always Kurt's face um, that, uh, that the team did and just through really, really hard work. And we've got a very detailed discussion about how they did that on FX Guide, if you want to read about it, in terms of like how they use um, Aaron, who is his double, not for... Aaron to be a body double, uh, but actually to be a part of skin texture lifting arm shading reference double. Um, and all of that is uh, up on FX Guide. But yeah, he also kisses in this sequence as young Kurt, which again poses real problems because you're trying to kiss under a wig an old guy with a younger actress and make it look like it's two younger people. I mean, wow. Did they do that Just, last and he shaved... At the end, because he would have had to been clean shaven, and he has a, you know, a beard and other facial mm. hair that's real, seems real, maybe a trim from Hateful Eight or something. Ooh, you know. yeah, he he wasn't in Hateful Eight, um, this uh, where he's really, um, yeah, looked uh, rugged. But um, I don't know when it, when it was shot. I do know that he was. Uh, he had the, had the wig on, the Farrah Fawcett wig, and some tracking dots, and that's it. Um, there was no uh, nothing else in terms of appliances or anything else on him. And, um, yes, he would have been uh, clean-shaven for the for the sequence. Um, just, just remarkable. I've got to say, the other thing that, that's in the same story but I also thought was really remarkable is the full digi-double of Kurt uh, in the wetter sequence when he's inside uh, Ego's planet and he gets blown apart and he's saying, you know, when he says, oh, I really broke my heart to kill your mother and... <laughs> And, uh, and not, not unsurprisingly, a, uh, a young Quill gets kind of upset about that and Peter blasts the bajillicans out of him for killing Meredith, his mother. <laughs> um, 
when he's reforming up, I thought what they'd done is tracked on CG. So like when half his face is there, I assumed it was yeah. live action face and there was just they'd removed half his head with, you know, basically roto and then just stuck the CG on the side of it. That's how I'd have done it. And uh, I actually dug around and initially people were like a bit reticent, uh, not reticent, but just they weren't really discussing. Anyway, Guy Williams, who's the uh, visual effects supervisor of Weta, point blank guaranteed me that it was 100% fully CG. So the bit that's, um, and I trust Guy implicitly, so the the bit that we see on the right, as it were, on the camera right, where he's totally normal looking is completely digital. And that's jaw dropping in of itself because it looks well, that's a, like her. It's a fun sequence too, because it, it looks so, it, so reminiscent of things that we've seen in past films, but it's really taken to a whole nother level. Like when he's reconstituting and you see sort of his, his uh, you know, uh, skeletal structure and his musculature yep. and stuff. Um, it really, it reminded me a lot of both, um, I think it was the Paul Verhoeven movie called Hollow Man. Yes, years and years I, I ago, thought the same thing. As With, well um, as, Kevin Bacon, uh, right? Yeah, as well as the the Imhotep uh, from the first Stephen Summers Mummy film, yeah, um, where they did some of that kind of work, and it, it it was that same kind of work again, but at such, I mean, you know, like with everything turned up to eleven, you know, to keep <laughs> keep the theme going here tonight. But I mean, it, it it's so well executed, and the the level of layering and of detailing um, in that kind of CG um, double as he's reconstituting, I thought it's just it's so gorgeous and such a fun kind of shot. So it's taking that kind of same technique that we've seen in so many films in the past, but really making it unique and making it its own thing and doing it, you know, I think uh, by a, a high factor uh, times better than we've seen it done before. Do you know, they, um, you mentioned, I think uh, before Jason, that um, they did the Hoff. Do you know they did a digital Hoff? Oh, that was a digital Hoff? Yeah. They didn't bring in, I figured they would just bring him in for the day. They did bring him in, but then they made him a digital version oh. um, because they had to reform him up and they tried forming him oh, right. with a morph and it wasn't looking strong enough. And because they'd done digital Kurt, they could completely control things. So they right. ended up making a digital hop so that they could like grow the hair and do things properly. And um, That was a yeah. good solid digital hop, man. You know, he should buy that from them. <laughs> He's yeah. going to need it. <laughs> yes. I still think he was better as a human speedboat in the first SpongeBob movie, though. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't know. I saw the original SpongeBob movie, but sure, I'll take it. Um, oh, Goofy Goober. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what? It's a song at the end where yeah. SpongeBob shreds, and it's basically a Twisted Sister ripoff. It's really good. Um, okay. Anyway. Sure. Let's go with that. Um, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, um, what about the uh, the sequence where we um, have at the end, of course, the sort of send-off uh, for... Um, uh, for uh, Yondu and stuff. I had an interesting time chatting to some guys over that and it's coming up in an upcoming thing. The um, Effectively, I'm going to call it the fireworks sequence because it wasn't fireworks because mm-hmm. it was in space, but um, that whole end sequence, how do we think about that? And of course, it then ties into all these extra 78 different after credit bits that came after <laughs> it. Yeah, I mean, it was cool. I thought, I thought uh, 
you know, that character, the Yondu, Yondu character, I thought uh, it was really fun, The his sort of amping up of his role in this movie. I thought he was fun to have as a character and sort of the the complexities of, you know, what you always sort of see as his <laughs> incredibly, like, poor judgment. <laughs> but then he also seems to have this, like, uh, you know, s- sort of, insight into certain aspects of, uh, some of the characters, including rocket. Right. And then of course, uh, into egos, um, you know, larger plans with, uh, all these, uh, kids that he's bringing to him or whatever, which is kind of creepy, but, um, I thought that was cool. I mean, it was, it was a nice ending, uh, and a nice sort of send off of that character. You know, I don't know that, uh, you know, the emotion seemed like it kind of outweighed like the degree to which we even ever really got to know the character. He was, he was fun and he was cool, but it seemed like a, a sequence that was, um, uh, yeah, part of the sort of falling action of the picture. I actually was going to say the thing that I did think was really cool with Yondo though, was, uh, I thought the, the sequence where his little, um, I don't know what you call that thing, but his, his whistle arrow thing where it, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's sort of grotesque. I guess the body count must have been so high in that scene, but but the way that it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and expanding as he's kind of cruising through and taking care of all the uh, the bad guys on the on the ship um, in the final part of that sequence where it's it's up above and we're looking down and we're watching it whiz around, you know, uh, multiple yeah. around different hallways and stuff, and it's creating this ornate pattern and stuff. There was something about that that I found really um, visually. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so sort of lyrical as a design of uh, a sequence, um, and so kind of unusual. I mean, I, there's a kind of a a sick part of it too, in that like so many of those guys, like you know, uh, dying. It's sort of hard to. Uh, it's hard to justify that extreme body count, but at the same time too, like the way they did it, I thought visually was, was really cool. It was fun to watch. But then, but tied to that earlier, which I really liked was like explaining that the Mohawk thing on his head, the robotic, you know, whatever that is Mm -hmm, actually mm -hmm. is what controls the arrow. Yeah. Uh, And the scene where, where Groot has to go, baby Groot has to go sneak and find <laughs> yeah. all the shit in the drawer and bring him back. Uh, was keeps bringing back uh, the was, wrong thing. Uh, yeah, it was hilarious. Oh, the um, great, the Groot miss. Yeah, the bad recovery of the items was genius, yeah. and and it would have been so easy to lose that sequence because it didn't really further the plot. But oh my god, I'm so glad they didn't. You know, I mean, like that's well, the thing it did that though, you'd... kind of because it built tension. Is he going to wake up the guy? You know, the longer it takes, the more it might may not happen, and they may not be able to escape. So it it did further the plot in a tension standpoint, maybe not in a information standpoint. Oh, um, I think it went on. I think it it, it was it long. Went on, but yeah, it was long, but it was deservedly long, right? Like it was. So good, I didn't want it to finish, and I never felt yeah. like um, it should finish. But uh, yeah, but I did like the. I I actually I disagree with you a little bit, Matt, about mm. Yondu's like not deserving the send off because of what you sort of learn between you know you you find out from the Stallone character that he's broken the code. You're not sure what that means or what it, you know, is he a bad guy? You know, what has he been doing uh, that's broken the code? But then you find out, you know, through the plot and, and sort of the, I saw the rocket, um, 
Yondu coming to save them, similar to like Lando and Nine Noon in the uh, in the Millennium Falcon, you know, in Jedi coming to help, you know, everybody else. They're they're still you know heroes and helping, but they're like sort of B squad at or storyline wise. Well, and that and that he is uh, in the end, he's he's the real father figure. Yeah, you know, yeah, and that he's been working for Ego for the whole time, and that he decided to you know to actually star lords the only one he didn't give he didn't give to him yeah i mean uh, I, you I know could totally i could i could go there i guess i'm just saying it was like it was like matchbook emotions you know that's all <laughs> like yeah it yeah i mean you know what i mean but it's a you know whatever it's a kid movie too right so yeah <laughs> well, i thought they know, it's not i thought yeah <laughs> I, true but i thought <laughs> i thought it was all there you know what i mean like i wasn't you know i it, it all made sense um yeah and and uh, I like the the rainbow kind of like dust that he was getting turned into, you know, the little panspermia kind of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. thing, you know. And uh, you know, the fireworks are, you know, the colors, whatever they called it. You won't, you know, the lights, whatever Stallone's thing was. You'll never, you'll never, you know, funeral or whatever his line was. You'll never be given the lights or whatever it is, you know. Uh, it worked for me. It, you know, it was obviously, was he playing father and son during that? Uh, the, is that when, oh, yeah, is yeah, that yeah, when yeah, he played the, the yeah, Cat yeah. Stevens? Yeah. 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 So that was, uh, bit, yeah. Like, I mean, I, I, I mean, thought, I liked I it because I love that. I love Cat yeah, Stevens. So it, uh, totally. it was a good, it was a good, it was a good choice for that. You know, maybe a little on the nose, but, but I think it worked well for that. You mean Yosef Islam? Well, now, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. Like, if they earn it, I feel like they they can do it. And so that was a scene that I thought I was totally fine with, right? But you know, I wasn't fine with the throwing the ball with the catch. That just seemed to be, yeah. You know, it was neither earned well because there's nothing was it, earned. Yeah, yeah. It was just sort of a thrown, for lack of a better pun, it was just thrown in there. Well, I guess and, it's supposed to be right. The thing where you start to question whether or not, like, you know, is uh, is Star Lord going to be sort of sucked into this? Like, is it going to fulfill some like deep emotional need that he has, and he's going to be willing to sacrifice, you know, friends for the <laughs> for for fulfilling that sort yeah, of missing but, father thing? And it's like, but I mean, in the end, what's funny is like, doesn't he make some joke about like when they, they say they're going to make a a planet and the things that he says about what he's going to make? I can't remember what he says. But yeah, it's you like, know, like a giant Pac-Man and um, it's uh, whatever. So thing. ridiculous. Yeah, and then they do they play that gag out too, right? Later but the thing is, big fight. But sorry, but to go back to like the the thing, like he has that whole black eye thing, like where he's kind of taken over by the the um, sort of like a supernatural force. Mm-hmm, like I, mm-hmm. I feel like had he actually looked like he was gonna. Um, there's a scene in. Um, okay, you're gonna really get shoot me down for this one, I'm sure. But anyway, there's a scene in Star Trek where Data is tempted to betray uh, Picard for um, being human by the Queen of the. Um, the hive that uh, that is uh, happening, and so yeah, the he's, Borg queen. Yeah, she's got this skin thing that she blows on his arm, and he's like experiences this for the first time as a sort of full emotion. Blah blah blah. Anyway, the point is, there's a bit there where he says, um, uh, "Were you tempted or something?" And he says, "For point five seven eight, so a micron of a second. 
And he goes, well, and he's, and I can't remember how the quote goes, but something like that. And to which he says, for, a, for an Android, that's an eternity, right? And like there was a sense that maybe just for a briefest kind of cycle, he was actually tempted to, you know, go to the dark side. If they'd had Star-Lord played like that, like he was actually tempted to kind of, you know, do it. Wasn't taken over by black stuff that turned his eyeballs black and wasn't <laughs> shot through the chest with lasers, but actually was, you know, maybe going to do the wrong thing by his friends. Then you've got some emotional beats that I can, you know, like he's kind of vulnerable and blah, blah, blah. But here it was more like, yeah, no, he was never going to do anything wrong because he's the good guy of all good guys and well, he's also, one of us. And also they decided to play the beat... They, they they made a choice of when to display his power and they could have done it where he where ego says hey let's go make a planet or do something where he shows his full power in some capacity so then you're yeah. asking okay now i have a little bit obviously ego is more powerful but now i have an inkling that maybe he could you know challenge him if he so desired in which in this case they decided to play that they just ignored that uh for better for worse and played it out during the fight scene well we're already fighting so i'm gonna know pretty quick right at the beginning of the fight scene whether or not he can withstand the power or not and then it's the fight scene that plays out that bit so it's it's sort of uh you know i don't know if that would have fixed your story point but uh it's an interesting choice yeah, because you you want you sort of want them to be vulnerable, and also Star Lord's not meant to be you know like Superman that's kind of incorruptibly wonderful. He's meant to be a bit of a rogue, right? So yeah, well he's he's kind of a dumb hero, right? Like he's, yeah, he's but not you know like in the, the Sting, ball, but he's really sweet, right? But remember in the Sting, where you were really wondering whether or not um, Robert Redford's character was going to do the dirty on uh, Paul Newman's, right? Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. it was really. A possibility, right? And so when he didn't, it was a really satisfying buddy film. But there was a definite point there that you were very worried that um, uh, that, that was going to be the case and that, you know, maybe he would uh, kind of, you know, sell out or had sold out or that there'd be a double, double cross, whatever it was like. It was, just wasn't obvious. And um, so that's what I kind of wanted. But that being said, you know, it's a Guardians film, Mike, get over it. Stop prattling on trying to make it into art but i don't know just i like the first one so much anyway i'll beat myself well, up later hindsight is 2020 obviously we're we're coming at it from a much different yeah you know viewpoint uh well plus this counter made, what, all this a billion dollars like i'm, I'm, I'm yeah <laughs> so much cleverer oh, i'm sure the, no one's complaining on the other side yeah yeah I so mean, uh, can i do a couple rapid fire like questions for you guys of things that we haven't sure. touched on just yeah so um uh, Mantis. What do we think of Mantis and her uh, her animation and her uh... technically good. Couldn't see why she was needed to help him sleep. That seemed like a lame plot point, but I thought your character was interesting and obviously set up lots of really good gags, especially um, uh, you know about the uh, you love her kind of thing. Yeah, Jason. Any thoughts? Yeah, on her? sort of, sort of same. I mean, I didn't, I didn't. It didn't bother me, the sleep thing, because it's kind of like, you know, maybe that was his one sort of vulnerability is he just needed this aid of, or he allowed her to help him sort of switch it off for a minute. Um, so it didn't really bother me. Really? Obviously, you didn't, didn't came, feel like we were setting up for a thing, we're gonna, a device we're going to need in the third Well, act. of course, of course. <laughs> but I mean, 
that's, you know. Hmm, that's curious. An omnipotent <laughs> all, being that requires this person just to help them sleep. I wonder if that'll come in handy later. Yeah. So in, uh, in the, it wasn't uh, a huge it, problem, but, but her animation was really nice. Yeah, I thought it, I thought it worked pretty good too. I thought, and she she was a fun fun uh, addition to the crew. Yeah. What about um, the fight between the two sisters, Gamora and um, uh, what's her nuts, uh, the Robo Nebula girl, Nebula, Nebula. Nebula. They're, they have Firstly, a big fight sequence where she's out, sort of Gamora's out, sort of like alone on the surface of yeah. the ego planet, right? And she's attacked by the by the ship. Does anyone recognize? Nebula as um, the actress uh, Karen Gillan from Doctor Who, like she is unrecognizable to me. Yeah, I, I, would I know that she's from Doctor Who. I know the character. I cannot see it under the makeup. Yeah. Um, my only problem with that, I think I mentioned it earlier, is that I thought personally, like the fight worked well. It's you know it was all fine, and I liked having um, Nebula in the plot thing. It made it more interesting. But when they're fighting and, sh- and um, and Gamora picks up that entire weapon that's fallen off the right. ship that's the size of like seven fridges and then chooses yeah, yeah. to fire it. It's like, well, now we've gone into silly, you know, people can do anything, lift up anything. And by the way, Drax hanging out the back of the spaceship yeah. is exactly the same. That was going to be and, that was going to be my other thing. So her holding on to him while they're coming in and like that was just super lame. Like it was yeah. just unbelievably unnecessary. And oddly, yeah, they play the same. They play the same hanging out of the ship on a rope thing in Alien, but we can we can uh, talk about that when we do that movie. I, I did like though in the fight between the sisters. Like I liked some of that environment work, like where they were. You were sort of in this kind of deserty field. You were away from the the sort of hideous architectural yeah. constructions of ego and and um, the world itself that had these kind of. You know, it's sort of almost like a desert landscape, but it was kind of like a, a spring sort of floraling, flowering desert. And I thought some of that stuff was cool. And then they they wound up fighting in that cave, which was kind of cool too. And sort of that starts to lead you into the the sort of concept of that he is the planet, right? And that like at the core yeah. of the thing, like it sort of started to open up that um, pathway into that plot point. What about the? Um, Hang on, do you want some trivia uh, about the planet? Oh, sure. So the planet was going to be red, like super red, and uh, that was what everyone was working on. So it was going to be the you know ready thing where they were fighting because didn't it seem incongruous to you that it was like lush and then it wasn't? And so they were working on the whole red sequence, and then Animal had to do the lush um, stuff at the palace, and they decided this is I'm pretty sure I got my sequencing right. They decided that you know when they're throwing the ball, that should be outside. So that was shot as an inside on blue screen. They wanted to make it outside. So they were like, uh, bugger. So then they took away the environment and made it outside. Then they had to go back and shoot some extra second unit stuff. So they went back and shot extra second unit stuff, which by the way, they threw a whole lot of um, yellow side light on. And we should get back to Jason's discussion about the cameras. So mm. now the outside sequence is lit for interior lighting and strong side light magic hour yellow illumination from the side. So that was a huge problem. You check the lighting out in that sequence. It's a little variable as they tried to make one look like the other. And then Animal goes, how do we make this look like a lush outside? Well, we'll start by sticking lots of trees out there and we'll make them all red later because until we sell the lushness of it, I don't want to get into the redness of it. And then they fell in love with the lushness with the green and said, well, can we just introduce a bit of red back into the... And then they went, this looks awesome. And then they decided to recirculate that back into the loop that the other effects houses had for the other sequences. 
So what you had is this kind of not tail wagging the dog, but almost that in that they fell in love with something that then spilled back out. So it was obviously the right decision for the filmmakers to do because it worked. But that's the reason why you've got big outside red planet fight because that's what the planet was going to look like. And then in reality, it kind of turned into lush green thing. But it actually makes no sense if you look at the terrain. The one they land in that they approached in the sort of automatically building kind of bridge to the palace you just see lush everywhere. And then she leaves the palace and within seconds she's standing in the middle of a desert in the middle of nowhere. And they just hoped that you would, I believe, they hoped that you would interpret it the way you just did, Matt, which is that it was a, you know, an oasis of marvel in the the otherwise red desert. But the whole thing was going to be red, not not green. There you go. Bit bit of trivia. Yeah, I think like continuity-wise, like it didn't, present any I mean at least for me I didn't I didn't see any issue with like that shifting and that change like I I didn't even pick up on it you know like it seemed well, also you have it's me. an alien planet too so yeah. it's kind of like <laughs> why wouldn't it be that how do you know you know what I mean you yeah, ever been there for, you know it's pretty forgiving <laughs> way, yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> well except for you can see off into the distance and into the distance there's lots of lushness for miles right so she'd had to go on for a fair walk but anyway it's um, a what were your other points what were your other points Matt <laughs> Oh well, I, and then just a few other things I was thinking of was the um, the uh, the blue uh, like ego mass that like we actually see it like in contemporary Earth, you know, where it's like these big blue bubbly ball stuff that's like you know, and people are running away from like a you know a shopping oh the blob the street and stuff yeah the yeah. blob. <laughs> I don't know. It, it looked like something out of another movie to me in a way. I don't like <laughs> it. I thought it was yeah. so much out of another movie. I anticipate that it's going to be in another movie. Huh. Don't you think? It just uh, felt like crossover central to me. Yeah, also, something what, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, also what what is the purpose of it? What is if if that's his thing is for all those seeds that he puts around the 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 universe to turn into what? He just blobs like rock yeah. around the whole thing and absorbs the planet. Like I'm not sure of the what the it doesn't <laughs> communicate enough information. Like yeah, it was weird. I was hoping I was hoping that that those things that one of those things would introduce like Galactus or something. You know what I mean? Like yeah. mm-hmm. I would be like oh, I was I was like whoa and like my brain was like about to explode because I love Galactus and I was like is are we getting this is this are we going to get are we getting into Galactus? I also thought that maybe Peter Quill would become the Beyonder, which is we're getting into comic book stuff here, but mm-hmm. uh, or that Ego would be the Beyonder. This was that was from the Secret Wars, which was in the eighties when all the Marvel characters got transported to another dimension by this omnipotent being a la ego um called the beyonder and he brought them all there all the villains and heroes from the marvel universe there to fight on this alien planet and that's actually where spider-man finds the symbiote which becomes the black suit and that he brings back to earth which later eddie brock gets and becomes venom so like i you know they've never really done when they did the venom stuff back with the earlier the other uh, the, the bad movies, line. the other timelines, the, other, timeline, studio, the, the other studio movies. They, mm-hmm. they. That's a completely different. As they do, made up a completely different, you know, device for Venom, where the suit comes from. But that's in my brain. I was just like, oh, are we going here? You know, and then no, we didn't. But, but you know, uh, 
Uh, yeah. So I didn't, I didn't, I agree with you. Like the blob stuff was just like, what will people run from? Yeah. You know, that was yeah, the it brief, just seemed like you a know. crazy, like over the top kind of effect thing that, and then, you know, anytime you have a scene like that where you have, you know, extras, you know, doing, you know, just whatever the extra scale is for the day or whatever. And you've got them set up on some city street and you're like, okay, everybody run towards camera. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> I think you always kind of get something that feels real. It's like the, the park, uh, chaos scene in, um, the Jurassic world film or something, you know, like where there's just yeah. so many extras on set and you're sort of getting this kind of real goofball, almost like a old Japanese Godzilla movie, like screaming and running on the street kind of vibe. Well, it's also a little silly. It's also, also those, isn't Galactus Silver Surfer and isn't that Fantastic Four and isn't that like, you know, the... Uh, well, it's still Marvel. No, no, I know, but, but, but like, you know, Fantastic Four is their kryptonite, right? Like whenever they touch it, it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah sure. well, well, it's mostly Silver Surfer. Uh, they brought in Fantastic Four later, but Galactus and Silver Surfer were mainly just the two of them connected and then the silver surfer had his own his own thing okay um oh can i throw one out what did you guys think mm-hmm. of the watchers that stan lee was sitting with the watchers in space <laughs> again i mean like just like the the bobbly stuff i thought it was oddly lame and had to be from another film yeah. because yeah what the well it i don't think it's from another film although they may tie into the infinity gauntlet stuff with with Thanos, which is interesting that this this movie, although maybe these things are what's doing it, this movie, the first movie tied into another Infinity Stone and Thanos, who's going to eventually get the Infinity Gauntlet, the the which turns into the Infinity Wars, which is the event next two Avenger movies. Um, the thing that's interesting is this didn't further any of the of the. Um, Marvel Cinematic Universe longer arc, although it's possible that it did only because she wants to, Nebula wants to kill Thanos and, uh, and the watchers are, you know, are introduced and they're with Stan Lee, which my friend Mike pointed out. He thought it was really interesting that they may have been alluding to the fact that because Stan Lee is in every one of the Marvel movies, that he is one of the watchers, which would be just a cool thing <laughs> from a comic book standpoint that he of course is the omnipotent being that, that Creator. makes it all go. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. It just as, as a, as a thing, like as a scene, like it just sort of, I mean, yeah. I, I have so much respect for Stanley and all the things that he's done and created, but I do think some of his like cameos in some of these movies are, they're just kind of almost like they're, that one was just, yeah, a little over the top, you know, like in terms of didn't the, it the seem cheap it to the, you? But it just seemed cheap. Yeah, like, like the, the set looked like was yeah, really like, bad set in like Culver City somewhere. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and we just up like against a green screen. Yeah, I think they use the old moon landing these set. Tall people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like, can't you get some Houdini in there and give it some dimensionality and some some effects stuff? Can I throw out another cameo that I did love? Can yeah. you guys pick it up? Oh, Howard, the Howard, Duck. Howard the Duck. But that was overplayed, wasn't it? Like we had that in the other Gar- the Gar- Guardians film. Then they played well, it, it was like very, much stronger. Very in this one. slim, though. I mean, it was much shorter in the other one. I'm hoping that's because they're going to make a Howard the Duck movie. Uh, really? So yeah. Okay. I hope. So can I talk about just? I just want to mention two visual effects things that I kind of wasn't crazy about. Just I think yeah. overall the effects were were really solid. But I'd be curious to hear what you guys think of these. But I wasn't I wasn't super crazy about the. Um, the 
the drones that are controlled by the gold people, you know, that kind of come flying in. I thought as a, yeah. as, as a story point and as like an effect, like, I mean, I think they were well executed as from an effect standpoint, but it, it, it felt like, again, it was like a trope, you know, like it was sort of a trope that we had from the last film with all the film, yeah. all, the, all the ships that come together to form the big, like that electrical kind of net thing that they mm-hmm. create in the previous movie. And it felt like it was kind of just going back to that same, sort of mechanism again from a story point of view. And then the 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 one effects thing that I really had a hard time with, I love the interior of the ego planet. I thought like when they showed it in in its kind of calm state, I thought was really interesting. But when it started to come apart and when um Gamora uh and I think it's with Gamora and her sister and they're yep. they're like they're riding up on like a Yep, nebula ride up on the a nebula. They're riding on like a butte as it like kind of rises up into the sky like an elevator or something. I thought that whole sequence and the visuals in that sequence they felt really um super composited, you know, like they didn't it didn't feel like a, a believable sequence and it was during that sequence as well with uh them all kind of flying around and doing different things that I thought was the first time in this film, uh, if memory serves, I don't think they did this in the first film, but where they had something we talk about sometimes, which is the, um, the impossible camera too. And so the impossible camera moves started to come into play where we were having things happening that like you couldn't do physically. And so we started to have that real like Uber, kind of CG style environment with the impossible camera and some small, you know, live action green screen elements. And I thought that's where some of the stuff started to come apart a little bit. Like it went too far into a realm of um, unbelievability visually in the visual language. I was wondering if you guys thought that ending fight sequence, if you had any thoughts on any of that. Uh, I would chime in on the ships thing. The thing, I agree with you, I think it was a little rehash of the the net, neural net sort of ship thing from the first, from the first uh, movie. But what I did like is that they were all remote controlled and that it was sort of like a video game when you go back to their, their control room and they're all like, they're all like, oh yeah, come on, you could do it. Like they're the last guy and they're watching him and it's like he's defeating the last level. Um, I also like that they were supposedly these uber evolved people, but they were just dicks like everybody else. Uh, <laughs> you know, from a, that's just a story thing. Uh, I agree that that the planet stuff, like yeah, those big like columns of like uh, cubist kind of things pushing up through the ground, and they're like, oh, I get it. Hold on, it was like Dragon's Lair. They're like, hold on, push right now, you know, and then jump mm-hmm. on and ride it up. Uh. Well, it's just the the visual language and the sort of geography yeah. of the space. Like it started, it stopped making sense really. And I was sort yeah. of like, well, okay, so now anything's going to happen. Like I'm just kind of going to watch what's going on here. I guess I'll wait for the sequence to be over. Like it felt like it didn't have, uh, it wasn't grounded in any way. There wasn't like a center or a goal that they were trying to yeah. achieve other than just to sort of like, you know, hopefully not get squashed or whatever. Um, I didn't have any problem with the third act stuff actually i thought it was mm. pretty good um i mean i thought that as i like the fractal nature of the like the environment looked good i thought and uh mm-hmm. and worked i mean my biggest problem was a design problem which was and i'm sure i'm right in saying this there was a point where you saw an actual human looking brain at the center of everything right Right. I didn't didn't have a nightmare about that, right? Yes. Okay, so that makes (laughs) no sense to me 
whatsoever. Because for a start, it perpetuates the myth that you are your brain, right? Which is just a pointless kind of, um, I mean, at a more philosophical level, like, you know, just the brain isn't you. It's, you know, it's this manifestation of you as the brain. It's like as stupid as it was when it was a manifestation in the middle ages, it was your heart and your brain was used as a cooling device for blood. I definitely know some people who are more their butts. Exactly. And that's the sort of people that we like hanging with. And so there's that. And then it, why would it look like a human brain? And, and in particular, like, you know, I mean, I know that, but like a brain looks like that because the neocortex needed to have larger surface area. And so when mammals decided to go for the neocortex, we decided to, that it was such a good idea that we needed more brain surface area. So we started making crinkly brains so that we could have more surface area for the thin layer that's a neocortex. It gives us the ability to be mammals and clever and learn things. All good, right? All very specific to one part of sort of the Earth's biological evolution. So I don't see how having a crinkly sort of brain looking mass is anything but odd, like just wrong. Like what? Like a mammal brain is the only thing that is going to be floating in the middle of the known galaxy. Like, and even if you didn't have any understanding of like evolutionary biology, why a human brain? Like just at that point it was odd. And yeah. yet, I mean, like if it had been a thing that you said to me like you did before, right? Oh, well, it's an alien planet, so how do you know? I'd be like, okay, it's an alien sparky thingy <laughs> thingy that's from a different dimension. What do I care, right? But it wasn't. It was like putting a like... You know, his his spaceship was a Ford Capri. Why was it a Ford right, Capri? Right. It's a very particular thing, right? <laughs> well, I know what a Ford Capri looks like, so I, that's a Ford Capri. So, you know what I mean? Like it was like, what? That just seemed positively ham-fisted in its design aesthetics. And that's what I mean by like turning up to 11. And I feel like at yeah. some level you're saying to the audience, oh, you're just going to go along with it because it's all fun and good. And whenever people do that in films, I feel like they lose uh, just a bit the kind of love of the audience because it's that kind of, you know, you don't care if we can pull off the impossible because it's all a nod and a wink. And when 007 went that way, I felt the same way. It's not just having a go at Marvel. Like when he was riding down the side of tsunami, you know, waves on the door of a blown up car, I was like, yeah. okay, well, this is just well, stupid. I, I think that's how I felt about that final final fight sequence where the planet is collapsing and stuff. I think I, that was my feeling was it. I felt like I just was along for the ride there. Like it wasn't like, there wasn't there much. There was no danger. And, yeah. Yeah. So I, and I just have to say this, the last thing I wanted to mention and because uh, I think the best sequence though in the whole movie for me that I just from a plot standpoint, character standpoint, and even from an effect standpoint, even though it's not that sophisticated. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. It might actually have been. Uh, is when their crash landed on the planet and Rocket um, is by himself in the ship and everybody's gone off to sort of figure out what they need to do. And uh, he sets all the booby traps and all the ravagers are coming and it sort of takes place at night in the forest. And there's all those oh, yeah. the darts and all those blue like explosions and they get blown up into the air and stuff. I thought that was probably the best sequence in the whole film. I really and he's <laughs> in the so trees. Yeah, it was just so great. And he's like laughing as he's doing everything. And yeah. I don't know. I thought that was really cool. And really well, well done too. Like the visual thing. effects were really fun. Yeah, well, same thing. You know that once you realize that he's smarter than all of them, then it you can sit back. That's a scene you can sit back and enjoy because you yep. don't need you just want to see his devices. It's almost like Rambo. 
Like you just want to yeah. see his, yeah, it's like all do his, his like thing. traps that he said. And like those were yeah. like, uh, what is his name? Taser face or whatever. Like, yeah. Well, that like whole thing was amazing. Taser faces, uh, henchmen or whatever, the ravagers yeah. or something. Like, wasn't that yeah. delightful? Like the laughing at taser face? Like that's, yeah, that was really that good. Was, that was A grade Guardians of the Galaxy, right? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just laughing. <laughs> you know, like, because you always have super evil guys, right? It's a bit like the, um, you know, it's like when, uh, yeah, in the first one they did it a lot to just pull up a weird part of, you know, the sort of the uh, the accepted canon of what is, you know, superhero-y and then they just mock it a bit. And, yeah. uh, and I thought that was exactly the case. Well, also yeah, in this in this bad. case, the, in this one, they they replayed one of one of Rocket's jokes in the first one when he asked for the guy's leg. Yes, and then oh, yeah. he didn't really need it. He just yeah. wanted him to take it. Just want to take his leg. And in this one, he asked for the guy's eye. Yeah, like, I need mean, that guy's eye. And he's like, "What?" He's <laughs> no, like, "Oh, I need it." <laughs> yeah, I think Rocket. Yeah, like so he's well just done. like a terrible trickster with so many like. Yeah, you know, it's worth pointing out, by the way. Jokes. Just for, for the record, um, I was saying how brilliant Framestore's work on Rocket was and it, it, I absolutely stand by that. It's just genius as it was on Groot and that was certainly, um, you know, they did Rocket in the uh, first film but, but a number of film, comp- a number of effects companies had to animate Rocket. So, in fact, Animal, uh, sorry, uh, Weta in the third act had to do him as well as, um, as others, I think uh, Method was it or somebody had to also do NPC whatever in the, um, yeah, it was Method had to do a whole lot of stuff in the middle. So Framestore originated it, but Method and Weta were two companies. So, so I just want to give a shout out. Like it isn't just the animators at Framestore that did an outstanding job. The ones at um, Weta and Method also did a brilliant job. Luma did, by the well, way, the gold people, the Guardians people. I don't think we mentioned who'd, who'd done that when we were talking either. So what, but, what do you I mean, mean the in-sequence? Is that a, that's a good bit of supervision then because obviously yes. there's, no, there's zero difference between any of that's all good. Like it's not they, like you're, they actually you think there is. They actually anything. think you could. They actually think that you can tell the difference slightly. And I, I agree with you. I don't think you can at all. Um, yeah, I mean they can, of course. I mean different grooms and stuff. And yeah. Chris so, Townsend was the overall supervisor, right? Uh, yeah. Yes. Sorry, I was going to say. Um, yeah. No, totally. I just wanted. I don't think we ever got to. I wanted to just do this before we wound up the end stuff, like those after scene credits things. Yeah. Mm. Did we have any insight into what's going on there, or was that just all? Because there was the the um, the gold guardians people um, appeared again, right? She had the uh, I'm baking something. So I just want to know if you had any insight into uh, what genius. Can thing I confirm? Can I confirm that the very last one was the Groot one? Right, there wasn't another one after the teenager. Groot, teenage Groot. Teenage Groot. Groot. Yeah, that was the best one. I thought. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, teenage Groot was because well, he was sitting there with a bunch of tree shavings. Yeah, like, clean up your room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oddly appropriate for this uh, opening part of this episode, I think. <laughs> uh, sure. Yeah, <laughs> there was. Yeah, there was that. There was the gar- the gold people had baked a, a new evil something. I don't know what yeah. that was. Yeah, was Adam. A, yeah, what's Adam, that? I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. That's oh, my brother was thinking that that might have been Galactus. Also, he had a similar hope for Galactus, but uh, I don't, I'm not, I mean, I don't know what it is. I haven't read like the newer comics, so I'm sure there's a reference that I'm not, that I'm missing. Um, And also there was an extra sort of um, uh, rave, what are they called? The the Yondu's crowd, Um, the 
Oh Ravages? yeah, Ravagers. Ravagers. Thank yeah. you. The Ravagers kind of looked like they're about to get a their own spin-off movie, yet alone appear in another movie, right? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, there were so many, I can't remember them all now, what happened in each one. I did like the them, title right? design, though. I did like the title design overall with the like the kind of dirty paper kind of is a little throwback to sort of a 90s, early 2000s design feel uh, of a retro feel. Um, but and they had the I, I am Groot for some names, right? And then that's Yeah, which I thought was cool. But it's also a great way the to keep people the, sitting there watching too, I suppose. Yeah, you know? and and people like these little like sort of animated GIF type things happening in the thing of of Gamora dancing and Nebula yeah. dancing, and you know, uh, it was it was fun. So somebody told me that, and I thought you would know this because I don't. That there's some mm. character called Adam Warlock that was the Adam reference. Mm. Uh, so I, I don't know my Marvel. Sp- comic books because he's a Thanos adversary apparently. So, because you're a uh, grown man. <laughs> well, no, because I... <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Because I did, just never read those comics. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't have known that reference either, but... Um, yeah. <laughs> and the other one I think was, we've already discussed, which was Stan Lee's cameo, right? Because he... They, yeah, um, with the Watchers, you know. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's right. I just thought you might know. I'll have to wait for another umpteen films. By the way, I do find sometimes you can put too much into those end credits hoping that they're going to be really complicated and cleverly tied into the next film. And I don't know, they always are. I mean, do you really think that we're going to have a very close tie-in with um, Doctor Strange and Thor? didn't look like it for the trailer. No. I mean, we saw that in the end of Doctor Strange's uh, end credits. quite, Quite frankly, I'm getting a little tired of the post credits thing. It's kind of annoying. In a certain sense, like what, Godzilla, what you know, King Kong had theirs. It's just like just put it in the movie, or put it like you know, give me a give me a big credit, like a thirty second to one minute kind of top line credits thing. Then give yeah. it to me. Then give me the rest of the credits. I mean, I like that people sit through and see all the work that's put into the movies. You know, certainly my kid has sat through many credits and even in this one, he's like, wow, look at all these people. And I was like, yeah, that that's, you know, that's, uh, it takes a lot of people to make these movies. So, I mean, there's certainly everyone who works on it in any yeah. capacity should be given their due. Absolutely. Um, oh, I, the I concept that-, that the concept that people don't know and have to wait around, uh, hoping to see one versus just actually respecting the credits. I don't know. It's a weird thing. Maybe I'm taking I'm it not, too far. I don't know. I mean, that, you know, I just like I it think, if it's significant, if it gives us something to the next film. Cause I remember as a kid, I even so way back, they'd be like at the end of a James Bond film, the big James Bond will return in, you know, the spy who loved me. And we'd be like, Oh, that's what the next film is because we didn't have the internet. Right. We're like, Oh my God, there's yeah. another film. And that's what's going to be called. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got a fondness for them. I just want them to be clever. I don't want them to be irrelevant to uh, to what's coming. So, um, yeah. And I, I just, think I think screen credits, like, I mean, they're great. You know, it's it's like it's great for the artists and their friends and their family and stuff. But like, you know, there was a time not too long ago where like 
really almost nobody got credits in a movie, you know, like it was just not part of the standard fare. And like, I think the expectation on the part of some that, you know, people would sit through and watch the credits and read them all or even really care about them is sort of, you know, I, I mean, believe me, no due respect, don't disrespect to any of the artists who work on movies. I mean, I've done it myself, you know, like, and I've worked on movies that I've uh, gotten credits on. I've worked on movies that I didn't get credits on. And, you know, but I, I just think it's one of those things where like, it's, it's a, it's great when you're acknowledged and it's, it's a, it's a really nice thing to, to sort of have in your back pocket. It's a great credential and whatnot, but you know, whether you're credited or not, or whether people see it or not, like it's really the work is kind of, I think should always be its own reward. And that bit and piece, you know, at least just from my, from my perspective, I just sort of feel like, eh, you know, it's, it's a lot to ask to expect people to sit and watch the credits, especially after watching a movie that's over two hours in length, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that happened to me the other day. I was, I saw a, I think it was like pirates or something. And it was quite long and I just desperately wanted to go to the loo. And I was like, I want to watch the end credits to see all the titles of all the effects companies, but like it takes so long. And I'm like, at this point, you know, um, speaking of giving credit though, I did uh, push Mm. past um, Chris Townsend when you were mentioning him earlier, Jason. And so do want to just loop back on that and say, yes, I totally agree with you that uh, Chris Townsend did an outstanding job with supervision because as you pointed out, getting continuity on all those rocket performances, which I think is like, one of the best things in the film from three different houses with three different sort of renderers and uh, groomers and shaders and teams working on it and getting that kind of consistency um, and any film of this side of size. I mean, I know he's been nominated for things like Iron Man 3 or whatever, but this is a big, big ass film and uh, it's got to be the most daunting job. And uh, yeah, he's obviously very good at doing um, that uh, that work with the team. And everyone you speak to speaks highly of him. So, yeah, we should give Chris credit where credit is due. We need to finish up, guys. It's been uh, fun. Can I particularly thank our opening hosts this week on the show who did yeah. an outstanding job. Uh, I, <laughs> I look forward to hearing more uh, from our uh, our younger uh, contributors. And uh, I want to thank you guys so also for supporting the show and uh, listening to us as you do. We really appreciate it. If you want to give us any um, uh, feedback on either FX Guide or over at, uh, say, iTunes under the um, uh, whatever it is, star system, we'd really appreciate it. Um, but uh, until next time, obviously, uh, as I like to do, Matt, where can people follow up and find out where you're up to and what you're at? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, on the Twitter at Matt Wallen and, uh, and then my website is, uh, mattwallen.com. And, uh, and again, thanks to, uh, to, uh, Thor for just terrific, um, <laughs> terrific presence on the show. And Matt, <laughs> uh, just, I would watch out, mate. I mean, he's going to be lecturing before you can, uh, can say what. Yeah. No. It's the diamond, sir. What about you? Uh, I would say you can find me on Facebook. Jason Diamond, although there's some other lurkers who have my name and also live in New York and have beards. So just make sure it's me. You're pretty prolific uh, on Facebook and you post stuff that's always of interest to me, which I normally it's not necessarily serious, but it's quite a lot of interest. You know, what's amazing that it, the way that Facebook parses out your posts is, or my posts rather, is makes it look like I'm on it all day, but in actuality, it's like 20 minute bursts here and there. But I, for whatever reason, I think I have like 3000 or 4,000 friends on Facebook just cause I don't care. Uh, and I not that 
that critical about who I accept as a friend, really. And so I get a lot of input, like a lot of crazy stuff. And so I'm constantly like, oh, I like it, I like it, I like it, repost, repost, repost. But it, Facebook doesn't just repost it in like a huge batch. So uh, I just want to point that out in case people think I don't actually work. Uh, but, uh, but thank you. I try <laughs> you don't to be, actually work I try to stop when you actually do. It's, yeah. I try to be, uh, I try to be equally uh, political and ridiculous. Yes. Uh, and, uh, my VR company, superspherevr.com. Yes. And, uh, as was announced this week, we're doing some amazing VR stuff at SIGGRAPH this year. So hopefully if anyone's coming to SIGGRAPH, you will come to the VR village where, um, uh, certainly FX Guide and myself have, uh, well, yes, I'll tell you more about that when we get closer to the date, but uh, it should be kind of When fun. is that this year? Uh, the end of July, literally like the last day of July, very beginning of August. Uh, till about In August LA third. again? In LA, yeah. I might have to come out for that. Well, I would love it if you would. Um, and I'm going to have something very, very interesting to show you. But um, more about that when we get closer to the date. But uh, okay. again, thanks so much to uh, Lucas for just an outstanding... Um, contribution and uh, thanks to my own daughter and I want to thank I say you guys and of course Matt for doing the editing and the team here at FX Guide and FX PhD for putting the show together until next time when I think we're going to be going <clears throat> to uh, to watch Aliens though as my daughter already pointed out I didn't watch necessarily all of it uh, I'm Mike Seymour <laughs> thanks so much guys see ya if you have any questions or comments please email us at vfx at fxguide.com copyright FX Guide LLC